This is Podcast Q with Matt Henney. That's me, and I'm recording this in my house in East Point wearing one of my favorite Ricky-inspired crop tops from Pose. Yes. I want to welcome to the show DeLon Burnside, who plays Ricky, and sadly is not wearing one of his crop tops from the show. Hey, DeLon, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Matt? I am good. So you're in Conyers. I'm in East Point. And for those people who aren't familiar with Metro Atlanta, we're on opposite sides of Atlanta. So we are appropriately social distancing. (laughs) So you are an actor, a singer, Broadway performer, and I didn't know this until this morning, a former boy band member. Is that right? Yes, I am guilty as charged. I was once in a boy band called 3D that I started with my cousins when I was 12 years old. I, uh, you know, gay men love some boy bands, so I was very excited to, <laughs> to see that. So so that was your first start into entertainment, right? Yeah, yeah. It was the beginning of my professional career as a performer, entertainer, artist. Um You know, I've always been drawn to the arts. Um, I've always wanted to sing and have sang and perform for my family and, you know, all of the church speeches and plays and school productions uh, were things that I uh, participated in and always had an interest for. And so uh, when um, my cousins and I used to spend the summers together, I used to, before my mom and I moved down to Pensacola, Florida, where uh, I I call my hometown, it's where I grew up. Uh, we moved there from uh, the Atlanta area. Um, when we moved there, before we moved there, I had I would go down every summer to spend time with my cousins and my my uncle who has a ranch there. Um, And uh, my uncle was interested in the music business and um, he started a little indie label um, called Bodyhead Entertainment. And uh, I had access to, I found one of his like CDs that had uh, music tracks on it. Um, And I wrote a song and we, I divvied up the parts between my cousins and I, and uh, 3D was born. <laughs> and, um, you know, my mom and my uncle, they were like, this is actually uh, kind of cool. And if you guys want to do it, you know, we'll support it. But as long as you're willing to put in the work. So so your debut single, Silence, dropped last week. People might only know you from your acting with Pose, but this new single is getting back to your to your music, which is how you started. Can you talk a little bit about how, the, how Silence came about? Yeah, so Silence was born out of my own personal experiences with feeling isolated and and lonely. Um, I was back in New York last December um, in my Harlem apartment and I had a severe case of the winter blues uh, that, you know, lots of people in the city uh, sort of face. Um, But beyond it just being cold and dark, I had gone through a breakup a few months prior. Um, Pose was on hiatus between seasons. Um, there was no press. There, there were no events going on, and so I, I really, uh, it, it was the first time in a couple of years that I had really been alone. Um, and no one was my phone wasn't ringing off the hook and that was really scary for some reason i think you know artists professional artists uh who sort of make a living from 
the, the work that they put in the world, sometimes it can be really frightening when uh, the phone stops ringing and when there's no one around um, because you know, it harkens back to a time in your career when maybe things were not as busy. Um, and so I was facing that and uh, I started to find myself reaching out to social media and dating apps and uh, sex and, and dating to, to feel validated, to feel worthy, to feel like, um, y- you know, to just feel valuable. and. I realized that all of these things were distractions for me. They were actually distractions from uh, from me facing myself. Um, and so I started to write this song uh, and uh, went out to L.A. with one of my producer friends and he and I finished writing it. Um, and, and recorded it in December. And, and then the coronavirus pandemic happened. Uh, and uh, back in April, I remember thinking, wow, this song, I was, I heard, I listened to the song and I thought this song has a completely different resonance now. Um, in a time where folks are feeling so isolated and are, and are actually being asked to isolate themselves from people um and you know i was feeling um those feelings all over again um i was feeling myself reaching out to social media to feel connected to people to feel connected to myself or this uh false vision of myself um i I found that many of my friends were facing it. I saw people on social media using a, a, a many number of things to distract themselves from actually just being with themselves in this time. And so I thought, now is the perfect time to release this song, um, you know, because I think people can really uh, relate to it. And I and I think that it, it can help some folks or I hope that it can help some folks along the way. Oh, absolutely. And it, I mean, it definitely channeled some things I was feeling, too. So uh, it, it, in that sort of aloneness that you were talking about. So uh, it, uh, it, it the, I mean, if anything good worked out of the pandemic, it, the timing, I guess, worked out well for the for the song. <laughs> well, I think I think uh, not just I think of it the other way around. I think of the song worked it worked worked out for the timing of the pandemic. I don't think the pandemic is in service of the song. That's not at all the way that I um, am looking at it. But instead, I I hope to be in service of those who are um, going through a pandemic. Well, and when you drop when the single dropped last week, you paid tribute to your mom mm-hmm. for all of her help in making it happen. So, and, and the video apparently happened there in her house in Conyers. Yeah, uh, and you and you talked a little bit about all the work that she's done behind the scenes, and 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 joke that I, I guess that she relayed a joke that she made about seeing parts of you that she hadn't seen uh, in quite some time. Um, yeah. So, and then I discovered that your mom she managed the the boy band. So, mm-hmm. talk a little bit about how she's been so involved in, in your career and what that's been like uh, for you and, and your relationship with her? Yeah, my mom has been one of my greatest champions um, throughout 
my entire artistic and professional journey, you know, from um, organizing rehearsals and choreographers and voice lessons for me as a young kid to setting up performances to uh, <laughs> to going up to the DJ booth and uh, fighting with the DJ for cutting off our song in the middle of a performance and making him start it over again. <laughs> you know, my mom is not to be messed with. Uh, she's definitely a mama cub, a, a, a mama bear for her cub. Um, but, you know, beyond that, you know, she completely supported me when I moved to New York uh, for college and uh, helped put me through college. And um, it's just always been my biggest advocate and uh, my most um, the 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 leader of the Delon Burnside fan club, um, and so you know when I told her that I was gonna do this video, and that I might need some help with some things, she was like, "Okay, when are we starting?" And she was so excited, and um, you know was there every step of the way. You know, I'd give her a little schedule and say, "Okay, these are the times that we're gonna work today," and she was ready. At those times, she was like, "Okay, let's go." You know, it's 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 it was really um, great bonding time for us to to work on this together. And also, you probably hear in the background talking right now, <laughs> but she um, she did say, "You know, I haven't seen you in your underwear this much since you were a kid." Uh, you know, which was. It was sort of strange to to ask her to be a part of this particular video because, you know, in conceptualizing it, I knew that I wanted it to be um, sort of revealing physically, uh, and that I wanted it to have uh, to to have a sexual energy because the song is all about how we how we sort of use sex to um, and and being sexual to sort of distract ourselves from ourselves. Uh, so I needed to explore that. Uh, and so I was a little bit unsure how I was going to do that with my mom holding the camera. Uh, so for the parts where I really had to sort of go there, it, I filmed myself with my iPhone and just, you know, left mom out of those moments. Right. Because there's a there's a shower scene and yes. they scene with you dancing in a towel. And I think you, in a different interview, you talked about how those were two specific scenes where mom was not involved. Yeah, she was not anywhere near those scenes. <laughs> but that's, that's funny. Was that for her comfort level or your comfort level? Mine. Both. both. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I did not even want to ask her about that. So, you know, I, I didn't even let her know that those scenes were going to be in there. She didn't see them until they ended up in the video. <laughs> oh, wow. What was her reaction when she saw the video? Uh, she loved it. She thought it was beautiful. And um, she's so proud of it. And she sent it to all of my family members and all of her friends. And uh, look at what we made together. Uh, you know, so she's super, super proud of it. And you mentioned you went to college in New York, and that's where you live outside of the pandemic. But you're back here in uh, in Conyers in Metro Atlanta for the during the during the pandemic. I, I, I guess it couldn't have been too much of a culture shock for you because you've you've grown up in the South, mm -hmm. um, but maybe a little bit. How, how's it been to be back in Conyers? Well, you know, <laughs> during the during the pandemic. Yeah, I actually uh, spent some time in the South at the top of this year filming um, a PBS special called Pride Land that was all about 
LGBTQ folks in the South. Um, and that was really my my first time spending a, a large chunk of time in the South uh, outside of just being like in my mom's house uh, and really experiencing culture in the South. Um, and that was January. So right before, you know, the, the pandemic and everything became a thing in the States. Um, and, and during that time, I sort of got reacquainted with the... It's <laughs> a polite way of putting it. Yeah, I got reacquainted with the South and a lot of the beautiful things about the South and uh, some of its challenges as well. Um, and and I was reminded of what it's like to be um, LGBTQ uh in the South during that time, uh, and also being black in the South, um, you know, when you, and then when you compound them together, it's, uh, you know, it's just a really interesting journey that one may have. Um, so I, uh, being back here now sort of on a more, um, that was for like a month, but this is like a, a more indeterminate, uh, undetermined amount of time during this pandemic season uh, until I, you know, I don't have any plans to return to New York until we start filming season three. Um, and so, you know, I am really figuring out what it means to be a Southerner and be black and be queer and how um, I uh, do my part to, for one, how, how I just live and, and thrive and survive here, but also how I do my part to make uh, Atlanta and make the South um, a safer, uh, more affirming place for black people and for queer people. And, and some of that effort was how we actually met in late June. We met at the Beauty and Colors Rally in Midtown Atlanta, and it was on the 51st anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, and it was for a march calling for justice and equality for black transgender people. Um, so how did you how did you get involved in that? Was that part of sort of your effort to, since you were here, to like you were talking about taking root in Atlanta and, and, and figuring out what's what's going on here in Atlanta? Yeah, so I um, I actually met Councilmember Antonio Brown uh, back in March. Actually, I, I came, I flew into New York uh, middle of March after our show was put on hiatus. Um, and I met Antonio uh, through a mutual friend um, the very next day that I, that I got in to New York. I mean, into Atlanta. I met Antonio the very next day and um, we stayed in contact and uh, I saw um, we stayed in contact via social media and I saw that he was having a hosting a march um, at the King Center um, here in Atlanta. And so this was, you know, just after the deaths of George Floyd and, uh, you know, people were and the deaths of uh, Breonna Taylor and Tony McDade. And, uh, you know, there were cries for the death of Ahmaud Arbery as well. And um, we we all met down at the King Center and there was a rally and we marched downtown. Um, and uh, after that march, you know, I just reached out to Antonio and we started a dialogue about um, 
you know intersectionality of uh the intersectionality of the black lives matter movement and making sure that those spaces um rallies and protests and march that they are are also affirming and inclusive and safe spaces for for queer and trans folks um you know this was just after we had seen um the br- brutal beating of a trans woman um, who was was out during the protest for George Floyd. Uh, and, and so um, that was just something that was really uh, important for me because that could have been any number of my sisters, uh, my trans sisters, who I know go hard for black men and will fight and protest for black men. And so often we see that black men will not stand up and fight for trans women uh, and instead are oftentimes fighting trans women. And so uh, I, that's just something that's become really important to me. Um, and so I was talking to Antonio about that and he told me about the Beauty and Colors rally and asked me if I would come and speak. Uh, I was actually out of town at the time and uh, I, I, I came back in town um, just for the march so that I could be a part of that. And, uh, you know, we, we are... To, he, he and I and a group of other folks are working together on a task force called the People's Uprising Task Force here in Atlanta to really um, see some systemic change uh, so so that we don't have um, the the issues that we've been seeing um, with, with the police killing black men in the streets. And uh, there's just any so many number of um, different things that are going on in Atlanta uh, and in the South and in our country where we're seeing folks be oppressed, uh, being unfairly targeted. Um, and, the, and there's a lack of equity um, in the way that our communities and our society is set up. So fighting to create the, the world that we actually want to live in. Right. And, and Antonio Brown, uh, for folks who don't know, is the Atlanta City Council member, actually the only LGBTQ member on the Atlanta City Council and was one of is one of the organizers of the People's Uprising Task Force. And he's the one that introduced the two of us uh, when I met you at the rally. And I, and I have to admit, I'm sorry to say that before we, we were introduced, I had never watched an episode of Pose. <laughs> That's OK. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm a bad gay man. But I no. since I have since binged both seasons. Uh, and have watched it all, and I'm a big fanboy now. So thank you, thank you for watching. But uh, so, what's going on with the task force? Is any anything developed since that? Yeah, engine. Yeah, we are actually working on a freedom ride that will be going to Louisville. Um, that is scheduled for about a, a week and a half from now. So you know, if you are interested uh, in taking a part in this freedom ride it is demanding justice for Breonna Taylor. Um, we have still seen that the the officers who um, who raided her home and killed her have not been brought to justice. Uh, and so um, this freedom ride is uh, a part of the effort to see that justice realized. Um, and, you know, please follow the People's Uprising uh, on social media. Uh, you can you can go there and find out all of the information about um, about the, the freedom ride. And please also donate if you uh, are so moved. We could definitely use uh, the funds. It's you know, we're, we're going to need the, the support for the buses that we're 
uh, taking there. Uh, and just so everyone knows, there will be coronavirus testing. Folks will have to wear masks. There will be social distancing happening on the bus. And so we, you know, a lot of people have had concerns about what, uh, how we, how we sort of address those things um, during uh, the time of, of COVID nineteen. Um, and we're, we're all very conscious of those things. Uh, but the, the fight for justice and equity in this country must continue, uh, even in the face of COVID-19. And, and you spoke at the rally and, and said uh, one of the things, said a couple of really powerful things that, that struck me. And one of them was that this is a revolution we've all been waiting for. And then you also said, quote, gone are the days of shrinking the fit inside of the boxes that white supremacy, patriarchy and capitalism had, have tried to confine us into. So what did you mean by that? I mean that I'll speak for myself and say that um as a young black boy, um, I was taught an, a, a myriad of things about how I'm supposed to show up in the world. Uh, a part of that is uh, because of living in a white supremacist world, uh, it, I was taught both explicitly and implicitly that I only deserve so much and that I, I shouldn't ask for too much, and that I should be grateful for what I what I do have. I think that uh, that's something that I've had to process in therapy a lot. Is this idea that um, you know asking for what I truly deserve and what I feel like I'm actually worth, uh, asking for what I'm worth, is something that I think a lot of uh, marginalized people have to contend with because we've been taught that that we're unworthy for so long and that we don't deserve. Um, uh, from a patriarchal standpoint, um, you know, heteronormative ways of being are um, really uh, insidious and infiltrate the way kids are um, are taught by their parents and their families, the way they're socialized in schools, uh, in in their team sports, um, all of these different um, organizations uh, and sort of infrastructures that reinforce, um, you know, masculinity as being uh, dominant. Um, and not just for boys, but for girls as well. And um, the gender binary. Uh, and so it, it teaches young boys, myself again, speaking for myself, it taught me for so long that accessing the parts of myself that are the feminine energy uh, or um, being in touch with my emotions was was not a good thing, was not something that I should do and that I should hide that, that I should make that part of myself smaller and make the the more masculine side larger and more visible for folks to see. Um, and, and in a capitalist society, those folks who perform in, in those ways, they are the ones who excel the ones who are able to perform masculinity in a certain way, the ones who are able to perform heteronormativity in a certain way, uh, the ones who are able to um, 
perform whiteness in a certain way or have a certain proximity to whiteness are the ones who excel in a capitalist in our capitalist society and so what i meant by that statement is we have to do the work within ourselves to really unpack all of these things that have been put onto us that have caused us to shrink minute by minute hour by hour day by day week by week month by month year by year it compounds and we become less and less of our authentic selves and more and more of the people that we think we have to be to be affirmed by a white capitalist heteronormative (laughs) patriarchal society Um, instead of listening to the thing inside of us that says this is who i am this is how i this is uh, how i want to express Uh, And this is how I identify. And so the work that I'm doing and the work that I was encouraging all of the folks who uh, were standing there at that intersection of 10th and Piedmont to do is to really do that work of of uncovering their true selves, their true desires uh, and their true the true expression of their identity and not the one that has been placed on them. You touched on this a little bit earlier, but at the rally, you also addressed an issue that has been getting more attention recently, and that's whether the racial justice movement is inclusive of black, queer, and trans people. And at the rally, you said that event sent a larger message that the personal is political. Can you talk a little bit about what you meant with that? Yeah, I think that we can't um, sort of extol these political ideals about inclusivity if we're not practicing them in our personal lives, you know? Uh, I think that for me to talk about equity and justice um, and and fight for those things in the political space um, or the social justice space, um, I need to... Equity and justice need to be um, tent poles in my life. And so I need to be figuring out the ways in which I need to decolonize myself. Um, I need to be figuring out the ways in which I can embrace a more equitable um, life ethic. Uh, and a part of that is denouncing my own privilege. Um, it is recognizing that I, as a cisgender um male uh, have a certain amount of privilege that other folks who are not male and who are not cis don't have. Um, and, And the ways in which that privilege can operate, the ways in which I can oppress other folks without even recognizing it, uh, the ways in which that I can be judgmental and the ways in which that I can um, uh, have different, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Biases uh, based on um, the place in which I sit, the place that I hold, the place of privilege that I hold. Um, And so, you know, I did a... um, uh, a talk series on my Instagram uh, uh, back in June during Pride Month, um, where I really wanted to talk about issues about around blackness and queerness, and it was really important for me during that time to really talk about trans issues um, because I've recognized that over the years I've had a blind spot on trans issues for the longest time. I I had no awareness about. Um, 
uh, no awareness of what trans folks go through, of what gender nonconforming folks go through. Uh, I, 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 for so long, I probably would have argued um, that the experiences of gender nonconforming folks, I, I would have argued against their experience. And now I, I have a deeper understanding because I've done the work to understand it uh, and make it a part of my personal journey to to grow in that way. So I just encourage everybody to do whether you're white uh, and you you feel like you want to be an, an ally to black folks or whether you are um, straight and you want to be an ally to queer folks or you're or you're you're gay or bisexual and you want to be an ally to trans folks, gender nonconforming folks. We just need to do the personal work um, to make sure that we are um, really growing in that way. And then the other piece of that that statement about the personal being political is so often we're asked not to bring our personal lives to the public space. You know, we're told that you know, we don't, we don't care who you sleep with. We don't, you know, we don't need to know your business. It's not about knowing my business because trust me, I don't want anybody to be knowing who I'm sleeping with anyway. Um, because that is, it's truly under your business. It's not about that. But what we're talking about is these are, we're talking about marginalized groups and a part of the way that you can, the part of the way that you can continue or that the system has continued to keep marginalized people marginalized is by telling lies about who those folks are, uh, is by keeping them silent and by keeping them invisible, by rendering them invisible. And so, uh, my point is that it's important for us, uh, as black folks, as queer folks, uh, to or, or or anybody uh, from any realm of marginalized identity, uh, it's important for you to stand up and be counted and be seen because the personal, your personal experience, the way that you identify, leads your politics. Absolutely. And and for a long time, uh, people who have opposed LGBTQ equality have used that sort of phrase, you know, keep your personal personal as a way to shut things down, which I think is exactly what part of what you just said. Yeah. So you it's 2020. I think you are 31, if I did my math correctly. Yes. And so talk a little bit about how it is to play Ricky, who is an early 20 something in the late 1980s. <laughs> Playing Ricky has been the opportunity of a lifetime. Um, he has taught me a lot about, um, he's taught me to be more empathetic to people uh, of different experiences. Um, he has taught me about my own um, journey to accepting all of the different parts of myself, um, about accepting my sexuality, uh, being more expressive of my sexuality. He's taught me about that. Uh, he's taught me how to um, be uh, more uh, discriminant about my sexuality as well. Uh, he um, has made me more confident and outspoken about queer issues. Um, he's made me, he's helped me to accept, uh, the more feminine parts of myself, uh, and to not be afraid to put those on display. Uh, um, it's, it's really been a tremendous experience 
to step into the 80s and 90s and um, work through some of the things that that character, those folks of that time had to work through um, because it's informed the way that I understand uh, what it means to be queer in 2020. Um, I think you, you, you can't, you know, it's been said that you can't really know where you're going until you know where you've been. And so Pose and Ricky have really helped me dive into queer history in a way that um, maybe I wouldn't have uh, done so much. Maybe I wouldn't have dived into it so deeply if I didn't have this um, this work to do. Well, and I, for me, I can say that's true. And I mean, I've been in the gay press for 20 something years and uh, and I learned things from from the show, from the two seasons of the show that, that I didn't know. So I, I think that's one of the to me, one of the uh, great things about the show is that it, it is shining a light and teaching some history um, to people, not just me, who's an older demographic, but to, to younger queer people who are definitely unfamiliar with what the 80s and early 90s was like. I think that's one of the great things about the show there are many but i think that's one of the ones that really stands out for me yeah do you do you feel a sort of um uh weight to playing a black queer man on a hit tv show that's it's it's there haven't been a lot of those um so do you feel um does that sort of weigh down on you and and particularly um also the fact that your character is hiv positive those things kind of how do you how do you grapple with those when you're when you're dealing with your character i don't feel any weight about it at all i mean i I feel I feel a, resp- a sense of responsibility for sure. I feel a responsibility to um, tell the stories authentically and, and, and honestly. Uh, I feel a responsibility to the folks, uh, the folks to whom these stories really speak because they may be going through similar experiences. Um, and I feel honored to be able to to amplify um, those experiences, uh, to to shine a light on those experiences. You know, I, I don't. It, it's it's not a, a heavy thing for me at all. Sure, there are there are scenes, and there are storylines that are are heavy in 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 nature and in tone um and so you know there are days when i come home just completely drained from you know for instance filming a full day of a funeral uh spoiler alert um you know in season two when we were shooting the the funeral scene for candy um that was a week long wow uh i was in I was at Candy's funeral. Ricky was, I was in Candy's funeral for a week. And there were trans women being murdered that week. And it was, even now I'm getting emotional about it because um, it was just hard to go home every day. with that reality and to to draw the parallel to to seeing my sister Angelica Ross in a casket to think about that um, was too much to process every day for a week Um, and so those things can definitely be really hard Um, 
but the work asks us to go there. And, and I think as a result, uh, we were able to create a piece of, a piece of work that um, really resonates and, and speaks to so many people, um, trans folks, folks who aren't trans. Uh, you know, it was that episode was about reconciliation between parents and, and kids. It was about you know, the, the, it was it was not just about candy and what was going on in the eighties and nineties, but it's about the women that we're seeing murdered every day in the streets. And so, yeah, it can be heavy, but I I feel um, mostly honored and and incredibly grateful for it. And so, speaking of spoiler alerts, uh, later in, in season two, uh, Ricky and uh, Pray Tell develop a relationship which gets a lot of reaction from, from the characters uh, on the show for a variety of reasons, one of which is because Ricky's in his 20s and Pray Tell is uh, in his uh, late 40s, I believe. Yeah. What, um, uh, and, I, and I think somewhere else in another interview, you said that was your first sex scene uh, mm-hmm. for you and for Billy Porter. So what, what was that like to to uh, to shoot that? And and do you think it has a meaning sort of in a broader sense for the show and and how queer characters are portrayed on TV? Um, Shooting it was incredibly nerve wracking. And I, uh, you know, I, Billy is one of my heroes. Uh, He has been for quite some time before, before Pose uh, was ever in either of uh, our sites. Um, And so to for one be able to um share scenes with him and to get to play opposite him as his lover or just any in any capacity opposite him uh is such a privilege and an honor and i am incredibly grateful for it um that being said, I never thought we would be sharing a sex scene together. Um, and so I was so incredibly nervous about it. And, um, I, you know, I think I was nervous about it up until the scene started. You know, we we talked about it beforehand and he was also nervous and was like, we're just gonna get in here and do it. And, and you know, if, if we need to stop or if there's something that comes up for either of us, then we'll communicate about it. But once we started shooting the scene, the the characters took over and, you know, we had an intimacy coordinator and um, uh, Stephen Canals, our director, was so great. Um, and and so, you know, it, it, it wasn't all the nerves went out the window and I felt really supported and really safe um, and uh, throughout the entire experience. And so I'm, I'm really grateful that I got to share that with my first, my first sex scene with someone who I trust uh, um, and who I know uh, has nothing but the best of intentions. Um, and so, and someone who's such a freaking phenomenal actor. Right. Um, so, uh, and human being. Uh, so that was really great. I think also, you know, it was really great to be able to be a part of this storyline where we, where we dive into uh, the lives of HIV positive black men and um, and it not just be about um, pain and hurt and not be and be sort of shrouded in deception so many times 
we I've seen stories about, you know, HIV positive folks and it's just it's painted in this dark way that's like there's something wrong with them or they did something wrong and that's why they have it and now they're unlovable because they have HIV and like everybody's afraid and like to be able to see two HIV positive men have sex and it be beautiful and loving and it not be salacious and it not be shrouded in deception or some kind of transgression uh, but really be rooted in love and mutual support and um, uh, and consent um, mutual consent uh, I, I'm really proud of that being out in the world that's great. So, as you can see in the silence video, uh, and particularly imposed throughout both seasons, but particularly it, it uh, struck me in the Vogue audition in season two, you're just in great shape. Oh, thank so, you. And you can see it in the crop tops, which you guys, <laughs> which your characters wear throughout the show. How, what's your routine like? How do you stay in that sort of shape? And, you know, what? What tips can you offer for somebody like me who's not uh, not does not need to wear crop tops ever? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, right now I'm not in the best shape of my life because I'm in quarantine and I have not actually uh, been as diligent over the last few weeks um, as I need to be. But I'm coming back, uh, and I and I think uh, I honestly think that's really the the major thing for me is that I've learned about. Um, you know, working out and body image and all those things. It's it's really about a an internal decision. It's about your your outer appearance um, is a reflection of what's happening internally. And that's not and th and that's not and I don't want to say that in a way that's like oh if you have a six pack that means you are like the most mentally sound and spiritually sound person because that's not what I'm saying at all. Because a lot of people we know that have ripped abs have a lot of turmoil going on on the inside but it, what i mean is like for me at least um it's more of an internal battle uh uh that i am waging against myself uh it's choosing to be uh be that version of myself that wants to work at this thing uh and i don't always want to work at it. I, nine times out of 10, I don't want to work out. Um, but it's making that choice and I've been seeing, and, and when you see the results, um, like when I go back and watch, for instance, the, the Vogue audition that you mentioned, I go back and look at that sometimes, I'm like, geez, I was in the best shape of my life, but I was working really fucking hard uh, um, to be in shape not only for that scene, but I knew that I had the scene with Pray Tell coming up. So <laughs> I, I was I was thinking about those things um, and it shows. And so, you know, my advice would be to, again, going hearkening back to the song Silence is it's it starts it all starts with you and um you your inner life really affects everything that you see manifest in your outer life so if you want to manifest a, uh, a six-pack uh or, or or guns of steel for biceps um you know you just got to make the determination that that's what you want uh and and not only that's who you want but that you are willing to become the person it's going to take for you to have it. 
That makes sense. My, uh, uh, I think I have to decide first to put the cookies down. That has been my, uh, that has been my cheat throughout the pandemic. Yeah, um, I love cookies. Let me tell you, and that's what I said. These past three weeks, it's been a struggle. It's been a struggle bus. But I, I think for sure that it's okay to have a cookie or two or three or four, you know. But everything in moderation, and you know, it's like I've got this jug of water here that. It's like encouraging me to drink water throughout the day. I do not want to drink this much water. I have to go and take a leak now. But <laughs> my point is, you know, it's it's like it's about how do I who is it that I actually want to become? And, and there's something about um, about seeing those things realize that affirms that you have much more power than you think you do and so sure have a cookie or or drink a coke every now and then because maybe that's what you want but also recognize that there may be something else that you want that has a stronger pull than that cookie so you know i have to ask pose season three what uh what's going on i think you said shooting was interrupted was that for season three the yeah pandemic yeah put, I mean, a, put a halt to yeah we were uh, we had just started filming in march and uh then we got uh came to a screeching halt uh <laughs> just like all the other shows um as a result of the COVID 19 pandemic and so you know i don't know when we'll get back to filming season three i hope soon because i i miss everyone terribly um you know i was just talking with um janet mock uh, a couple days ago and just checking in and uh you know talk to angelica uh today and angelica ross and and you know mj rodriguez we talked last week and jeremy mclean and uh billy a few weeks ago and so it's just you know we're all hopeful and looking forward to getting back to seeing each other um but for now safety first and uh you know the sooner that all of you queens stay home and wear your damn masks when you do go out the sooner you'll get post season three that is a good way to put it. I like that. <laughs> so you have fronted a boy band. You've performed on Broadway. You're starring a hit TV show. You just dropped a new single. What's next? I am starring in a film next. The title is yet to be determined uh, because I, I don't know what the film is yet, but I'm putting it out into the universe. Uh, that's what's next on the horizon for me um, is uh, a really great film role um and so uh i'm calling it into my experience if there are any screenwriters or directors listening now uh just if you've got a script for me uh send it my way um because i'm looking Delon burnside conyers georgia i don't know what the zip code is there three zero zero one two Delon, this has been great. I appreciate your time. My last question for you is where can people find you, follow you, keep up with what's uh, all of the things you've got going on? Yeah, you can follow me or um, check me out on um, any of the social media platforms, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok. I just started a TikTok, so it is really weak right now, and I don't actually know what I'm doing. Um, so I need followers. So uh, I don't need them. But if you would like to follow me and help encourage me on my TikTok journey, uh, you can find me at Dylan Burnside. It's D Y L L O N 
B-U-R-N-S-I-D-E. Well, that was fun. Thank you again, Delon. I appreciate your time. And thanks to everyone out there listening. Subscribe to Podcast Q. Keep up with new episodes and follow us at theqatl.com. And we will see you soon.